Welcome to episode three of the Via Emmaus podcast, where we'll be discussing the Old Testament portion of our reading plan. My name is Anton Brooks, and I'm here with David Schrock, the pastor of preaching and theology here at Aquacom Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Good morning, David. How are you doing? I'm doing well, brother. How are you? Uh, hey, I'm doing good. I'm trying to stay warm. I was shocked by the cold uh, <laughs> when I left my house at 6 a.m. this morning. Yeah, but it's supposed to be a nice warm day for winter time, so I'm looking forward to that. Oh, man. <laughs> looking forward to our conversation today, talking yes, about sir. Old Testament and then later on the New. Yeah, we have a lot to cover today, so I'm going to go ahead and jump in with Genesis. Right. Wait, one thing I want to say is I do not have my glasses on today, so <laughs> everything is blurry. So if I read a little slower than normal, That's please fun. forgive me. Uh, let's move to Genesis 9, 5, 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Does this mean that if someone murders someone, that we should automatically uh, put them to death? <laughs> yeah, uh, automatically, kind of a loaded term there, right? Yes, right. Um, Immediately. So, immediately. <laughs> so I would say um, certainly there is a, a due process of justice that needs to take place that is not given to an individual, um, but is given to the state, right? So if we read Genesis 9 in conjunction with Romans 13, right? so Romans 13 speaks about the sword being given to the state, right? No individual uh, has the um, autonomous authority to put someone else to death, even if... Uh, it is that individual who has killed someone else. Right. right? In other words, the, what's being instructed to here is going to have application for nation states. Right. And I do think that there is an instruction here for capital punishment for those uh, who have shed blood. Scripture says they no longer have the right to, to live for right. that. Um, but it's not something that automatically uh, we have uh, an individual authority to be able to do. So vigilante justice is not an application here, uh, but <laughs> right. justice given to the state is. Right. Uh, and probably a good example of this is just the way that Israel uh, works out cities of refuge. So Numbers 35 uh, talks about the way that um, if uh, someone accidentally kills someone else, uh, that uh, person is to flee to a city of refuge where they are then to have um, uh, protection uh, during that lifetime. But it's interesting, it says if they leave that city refuge, then they could be killed again. Wow. Uh, and the, the priests and the judges are the ones who to, to render a verdict there to make sure that it was accidental, right? So uh, execution, uh, capital punishment under the Old Testament law always required uh, two or three witnesses. Uh, it wasn't just one person saying against another. I guess if there was just only one witness, they would just kind of uh, have a draw. I'm not sure how that would exactly work out. Um, but there is uh, a process of justice that needed to take place. Uh, I mean, applied to ourselves today, I mean, there's so many ways that our, our justice system doesn't uh, act justly. Right. right. And this is why it is good for Christians to be involved in uh, legal proceedings and in the court system and in, in, um, in the justice system in order to bring justice, because often there hasn't been that. Um, so, again, sometimes we can see the injustice of our justice system and think, okay, therefore capital punishment is bad, and yet if we allow Scripture to inform the way of our thinking, the value of mankind is so great uh, that it says if someone has shed blood, uh, that their very own life uh, is at stake for that taking of life. Wow. Genesis 9, verses 20 through 27 will be our first discussion. 
So this portion of scripture um, deals with um, the curse of Canaan. So I'm just going to read some of it, um, starting in verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Jepheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He, he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So this language right here about the, um, the curse of Canaan and, and Canaan being the servant has been used um, as a as an excuse for white supremacy or for um, American slavery, um, is that a correct interpretation of these passages? Yeah, no, not at all. It's a satanic use uh, of the Bible. It reminds us, like when we saw last week, Jesus who was tempted by Satan. Right. He knows the Bible really well, right? But he uses the Bible out of context. And those who have used this in the past in, in our history, and, and sadly, you can even find books that are still published today. You can go to christianbook.com and, and find some of this teaching from things, maybe not written in our decade, but 50 years ago, 150 years ago, those are still being printed out. Um, and, and it's a misreading of, of Scripture. Uh, and I think it's important to see, okay, again, what is Moses saying here? Who is he writing to? What is he writing about? If we just look at uh, Genesis 9, right, we see the name of Canaan is mentioned three times there, right? So the curse comes upon Canaan, uh, which is striking because it's Ham uh, who's the one who seems to sin against his father, right? And um, you know, we could unpack that a little bit further as well. But just sticking with Canaan, Moses is writing to a people who would have known the Canaanites. Right. And throughout Moses' writings, the Canaanites were always associated with wickedness, with idolatry, with sexual immorality, uh, right? And, and so one of the things that's going to happen uh, is that in Genesis 15 is that God is going to promise Abraham that he is going to give the land of Canaan uh, to Abraham. That he's going to be blessed by receiving that land. And at the same time, in Genesis 15, it says that God is waiting. He's going to wait 400 years for the wickedness of the Amorites. The Amorites are one of the offspring of Canaan. We know that from Genesis 10. He's going to wait for their wickedness uh, to rise to such a point that when God moves the people of Israel into the land, two things are going to happen. He's going to bless his people Israel because of grace and his choice of Abraham and his offspring, and he's going to bring judgment upon those in Canaan because of their wickedness. And so in so many ways, the fulfillment of these curses and these blessings are going to begin to be seen in Genesis 15 uh, and then in Joshua when the people of Israel come into the land out of the wilderness. And in that way, it doesn't have that application to us today, and it's a misreading of the text to apply it to any kind of um, racial superiority, white supremacy, or anything like that. That's how it's been used, uh, but again, I'd say that's a satanic use of that. More importantly, the thing that we need to see is that in Genesis 10, uh, all races, or I should say all ethnicities, there's one race uh, that comes from Noah, all ethnicities 
uh, have a common ancestor. Right. And there's uh, equality and dignity that is given to everyone who's made in the image of God. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So, for me, um, you know, I, you know, being African American, I've definitely had experience with um, racism, and I've actually heard pastors use this. Um, or seen pastors use this on, on TV and on, on YouTube and other places um, as a reason as to say why black people are not um, equal to white people or not just black people, why other races are not um, equal to white people, um, which was always intriguing to me because when I read the Bible um, and I look at the geography, it's a weird assertion <laughs> because mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at it and I'm like, this is takes place generally in Northern Africa and in the Middle East, mm -hmm. not, not in Europe. So I always found it interesting how they came to, to such a, you know, such a mindset. Yeah, yeah. You know, but. Yeah, it, it may be just helpful to see as well. I mean, historically, there's been a way of looking at the three sons of Noah. Right. Right, where Ham, Shem, and Japheth, um, you know, uh, Ham is usually associated kind of more, more with Africa and Shem there at the Middle East towards Assyria and then towards the West, and then Japheth up towards the Mediterranean and up into Europe. Right. Right. What you find in the book of Acts, interestingly, is that when the gospel goes forward, it starts in Jerusalem and then it goes to the ends of the earth. Right. And one of the things that we see is the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, who there in Acts 8 is reading Isaiah 53. It seems like he's a God-fearer who is there in Jerusalem. He receives this scroll that he's taking back to the, the queen of Candace. And what does he do? He receives the gospel. He's right. given the spirit. He, he's baptized and identified. The blessing of Christ is gone to the people in, in, in Africa. Then later, we see Cornelius as a God-fearer, and in Ephesians, or I should say in Ephesus in Acts 19, the gospel is going into the Mediterranean. The thing that's happening is that when the Spirit is poured out in uh, Acts chapter 2, it is then going to spread to the ends of the earth, right? Right, And the reality is, is that because of our sin in Adam, that's all of us, all ethnicities, like we are all cursed because of our sin. Right. And our only hope is the blessing that we find in Jesus Christ that has now gone uh, to all the nations and will go to every people group uh, until Christ comes back again. He won't come back again until it goes to, to all the nations. Yeah, I, I think that one of the ways to for us Christians to overcome the, the idea that um, one race is superior to another mm -hmm. is to put our identity in Christ. Amen. When we put our identity in um, our ethnicity or our gender or our politics, um, we, we begin to think that we are better in the sense that we don't need the same, um, that we're in a better standing with Christ, which is not true. We all need Christ equally. Amen. We all need the exact same thing. We're going to move to Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel, a story that most of us are familiar with. So when the people were building the tower to, to the heavens in chapter 11, why did God diversify the language of man and disperse them? Um, so certainly that's the punishment uh, mm -hmm. that's being given there. Uh, it seems as though one of the things that's happening, and first of all, just w what is the Tower of Babel itself, right? right? Uh, are skyscrapers an abomination to God because they're <laughs> reaching up in the heavens? Yeah. Uh, it's probably helpful for us to think less of a, of a 
tower and more of a temple here. Mm -hmm. um, even what's known as a ziggurat, right? Mm -hmm. So in other words, it's a, it's a stairway into the heavens uh, that either is going to bring uh, the priest of the city into the presence of God, into the clouds, or perhaps invite the deity uh, to come down. Uh, and so they're, they're doing this. God had said earlier uh, to be fruitful and multiply and spread across the earth. And here it seems that they're not doing that. They're making a name for themselves. They're protecting themselves uh, in the land of Shinar here. Uh, and again, this Tower of Babel, um, that's going to be associated with Babylon right. later on. Uh, but what we see here is that he diversifies their language um, I would say for two purposes. One, because now they're not going to be able as one common race to work together in one place uh, to be able to build this temple together. In other words, he, he commanded them to be uh, to separate um, and to, to fill the earth. They didn't do that. So the diversification of languages is going to spread them throughout the earth. And, mm -hmm. and today our cultures and our nations are, are created because of the different languages uh, that are there. Interesting. We live in a time where we have different earpieces that you can put in and like understand other languages. <laughs> yeah. Not sure what that exactly means for the, the days ahead. Um, but certainly we see how God intended to uh, divide the nations uh, so that they couldn't do this one thing together. And then uh, we're also going to see that because of this, his praise is going to be magnified. Right? What was brought about as a curse in Genesis 11 is actually going to be turned back as a blessing when we get to the day of Pentecost. And the multiple languages hear the gospel. And now today, we don't just have one language that is praising God. We have thousands. Mm -hmm. And the gospel continues to go into different languages and must be going into different languages so that for all of eternity, God's praise will be even greater because there are different languages here. Yeah. Um, looking at Genesis 12 here, um, there's, a, there's a Pharaoh in uh, Genesis 12 um, and there are plagues that are associated with that. And we have something very similar in Exodus where there's a pharaoh um, who also was dealing with plagues. Are these somehow connected? Great question. Um, you know, when we read through Genesis, it's good to remember again that Moses is the author and he's writing it after Israel has experienced the Exodus. Right? So you'll find, even in Genesis, which happens before the events with Moses and Israel and the people in Egypt, that there are things that are written to prepare the way for that. And here I think is a great example, right? Because you do have Abraham, because of a famine, right? so Genesis 12.10 talks about a famine, is what leads uh, Abram and Sarai to go into Egypt. There's a famine uh, that's going to lead Israel, uh, the man, Jacob, Israel, uh, and his sons to go into Egypt. And there they sojourn there, um, beginning with 70 at the end of Genesis. And then there will be a couple million, perhaps, uh, by the time Exodus 1 begins. So it's famine. There's a connection there. Uh, certainly there is a pharaoh uh, that is there uh, with Abraham. And when he goes, uh, Abraham tries to protect himself. Uh, by saying that his um, wife is his sister. There's a half-truth in that. She was his half-sister. Uh, but it was his wife. Uh, and God has promised to him in Genesis 12, uh, 1 through 3, that blessing is going to come to him, that he's going to make him a great nation. The way he's going to do that is by giving him offspring, uh, which will require his wife. Uh, of course, that's the rest of the story from Genesis 12 all the way to Genesis 22. But now uh, his wife has been taken into the house of Pharaoh. So anyways, it's almost as though he's been enslaved yeah. or that she's been enslaved 
uh, in the house there. And what happens to Pharaoh because of this? Well, plagues come upon him. And that word for plagues is really interesting. Uh, doesn't show up again until Exodus 11, where it talks about the Passover and the killing of the firstborn son. Right, so the Hebrew reader, if they were to read that word plagues and keep reading into Exodus, the next time it shows up, it's now addressing something going on with another pharaoh, another plague that is going to lead God's people out of Egypt. And of course, what do we see here in verse 19 of Genesis 12? Why did you say she's my sister? So I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go, which is the very same command that Pharaoh gives to Israel after his son has been killed, after right. the plague of the Passover has come. In Exodus 12, 31, he tells Israel to take your people and go. So yeah, I think Moses is writing this story of Abraham. It's a historical story, but he's writing it in such a way to make a connection between the events of Abram and the events of Israel. And the reason I think he's doing that is to increase the faith of the hearers of this story coming out of Egypt, coming out of the Exodus, to trust in the God who has gone before them, uh, even generations before, to work in Abraham's life, and now he's going to be working in their lives as well. In Genesis 14, now th this is an interesting um, topic here. We're going to talk about tithing for a second, but um, I'm going to go ahead and read a little bit. In Genesis 14, starting with verse 17, um, reads this way, After his return from the defeat of Ketalaamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham and I'm sorry, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the, the goods for yourself. So I've heard this um, uh, passage used in reference to modern day tithing. Mm -hmm. um, is, this, is this something that we should be applying? Should modern day tithing be applied in the same way that Abram was giving a gift or a tenth to Melchizedek? Yeah, I think that's a, a good question. I think it's one that maybe comes after we just figure out what's going on here. Right. Right. Uh, who is Melchizedek? His name means king of righteousness. He's from Salem. Is that Jerusalem? I mean, what's this contrast between Melchizedek and Bera? Bera is the name of the king of Sodom. I think that's one of the most helpful things to just understand what's going on, uh, is that there is a contrast between two kinds of kings. And Abram has a decision to make. Is he going to identify himself with the king who is a priest of God Most High? Or will he identify himself with Sodom and his kingdom who, what does he say? He says, give me the persons but take the goods for yourself. What does he want? He wants to claim the persons for himself. Why did Abram just go to battle? He went to battle in order to save persons, right? right. Lot was taken away because of these warring nations that are there in Canaan. <clears throat> and God has uh, permitted Abraham to save him. And now the question is, will he give him over uh, to the king of Sodom? And it doesn't seem that he does that, right? But rather, 
he recognizes uh, the greatness of Melchizedek, and recognizing the greatness of Melchizedek, he gives him a tenth of everything. Not everything, from the spoils that he had received in the warfare uh, that he had just gone through. Um, in this way, Abraham is identifying himself not with the wicked king of Sodom. The wickedness of Sodom is going to be seen more clearly in Genesis 18 and 19, uh, but rather uh, with the true priest king, Melchizedek. Right, who we know from later scripture uh, is a type uh, of Christ. Right? right, that Christ is going to be identified with him. So, to the question of tithing itself, uh, certainly there is something right about us with all that we receive. We recognize that every gift that we have, every resource that we have, is a gift to us from God. Then it's right to to give those to uh, the priest king who is greater than Melchizedek. Right, Jesus Christ himself, right? And really, when we're giving uh, to church, when we're giving to ministry, to the gospel, we're giving to Christ, right? The way that we do that is by giving to the body of Christ and to the work of Christ uh, on the earth. Um, you know, the question about the tenth or the tithe certainly is going to be picked up later by, by Moses. Uh, and, you know, when we look at that, we're not under the same covenant, right? There's something different uh, today. Um, yeah, there's instruction for us that right. as we give, a, a new believer asking the question, okay, what should I give? How should I give? Is there an amount that I should give? Well, maybe 10% is a good place to, to begin mm. with, uh, right? Because even here, this is before the law is given, and yet as he's giving honor, as he's joyfully giving in this sense, uh, he gives them a tenth. And the one of the reasons I asked the question is I've actually been in, uh, in the church where pastors have said that if you don't give 10%, that you're cursed. Mm. And the, so this led me to do some uh, study of my own in Leviticus. And as I read and, and tallied up the actual tithing that they did, mm -hmm. it was actually more um, somewhere between 30 and 35%. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so, and the, the interesting thing that I, that I wonder is why do, you know, there's, a, there's laws obviously in Leviticus uh, and we'll take the 10th the out, but we'll ignore the law before and, ignore, and the one after it. Mm -hmm. um, and pastors will just say that if you don't do this one, yeah. then, then you're cursed. And, I, and I've always found that interesting. I personally believe 10% is a good number. Mm -hmm. It's a good biblical number. Yep. But to, to say that somebody is cursed if they don't give 10%, I think is an inaccurate reading of the scriptures. And even in this case, mm -hmm. um, where Abram was offering a tenth to Melchizedek, he wasn't offering a tenth of his personal goods. They were, mm -hmm. like you said, they were the spoils of war. They yeah. were his own earnings. Like when we give a, a tithe to the church, it's of our first fruit. It's of, mm -hmm. of the best what we have, not of what we what we bring back from war. Right. You know. So I, I think that even this could be a misapplication um, because the law had not yet been established. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's right, and, and certainly this is why, I mean, it's why our podcast exists, right? To think yeah. about how do we read the Bible and how do we read it better, right? Because so often pastors or anyone else can mm -hmm. cherry-pick verses out of context. Uh, we were talking before about just how Malachi can be used as a passage, you know, yeah. to, uh, to test the Lord in your giving, mm -hmm. right? It's like, okay. Um, but remember that Malachi is under the Old Covenant, right? right? And there's something important about seeing the distinctions between the Old and the New. And that language of blessing and cursing that you find in Deuteronomy, uh, even the blessing and cursing we talked about earlier that we find in Genesis 9, those are realities in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, 
right, which was a kingdom covenant. Uh, it was a, um, a very physical covenant. There was a land that was associated with that. Mm -hmm. And today we're sojourners, right? The new covenant is not one where today uh, we have a, a tract of land that we're living on. Right. Like the tract of land we're hoping for is the new heavens and the new earth that's going to come. That's right. Right? And so I think it's just so important to, to remember, okay, the covenantal differences between the old and the new and that really what we see in the New Testament is not an abrogation of giving. Like we're still to give to the works of the Lord. Uh, we're to store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. Um, we are called to be cheerful givers. Uh, and that can go well beyond 10% if the Lord gives That's means right. to do that. And at the same time, um, you have the, the model of the, the widow uh, <laughs> yeah. with two mites who's giving and it is pleasing the Lord as well. So at the end of the day, we can talk about all these different parameters, but what's the heart? That's right? where I was going. Right? Yeah, is, is, is the heart true to the Lord? Is it giving for his purposes? Uh, and is it giving for his glory? Right. Um, and so I think all those things have to be factored in. I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk more about that. This concludes our Old Testament portion of episode three. We'll be back with the New Testament portion shortly. Via Emmaus is a podcast of Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. For more resources related to this episode and the gospel-centered ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.